14 Grand Slam titles, level now with Pete Sampras, three US Open titles. Novak Djokovic is the 2018 US Open champion and he's king of New York with a straight sets win over Juan Martin Del Potro, who he'll now overtake to be the new world number three. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. My name is Gigi Salmon. The last ball was hit a matter of minutes ago, and I'm very happy to say that my colleague for the last couple of weeks on BBC Radio 5 Live and host of the tennis podcast, David Law, joins me. David, firstly, thank you for taking the time because I've already seen half of this place leave for <laughs> buses, flights. time. It, it, it's amazing, isn't it? So thank yeah. you so much. Pleasure. You were commentating on the final. Your thoughts on what you saw? I was commentating on the longest set that I've ever commentated <laughs> on. And, and, and this is my 16th US Open. So um, it, it really did feel like a, a, an event, that second set. Having said that, it was straight sets to Djokovic. He does look as good as ever. And that, and. If we were to go back even to the clay court season, I don't think I'd have believed that that was going to be possible. And he's done it incrementally, reaching that final at Queen's and losing out to Marin Cilic when he held match point, then winning Wimbledon, then winning Cincinnati. And to win the title here, um, the way he did in that final, to, to soak up the game of Del Potro, no matter how hard and how big he hit that ball, it's it's an astonishing feat, really, in terms of just everything being put together. His movement is is ridiculous. His accuracy from the baseline, the way he puts the ball within inches of the baseline, time after time, it it almost feels like Djokovic is getting better. Which is a frightening prospect for everybody else. And he also this evening, this afternoon as it started, had to overcome the crowd mm. because the cheering for Juan Martín del Potro, who, who, as you said a number of times, he just draws you in. You get hooked on del Potro. Yeah, and, and actually the final itself was 6-3, 3-1 to Djokovic. And, and it really felt like Djokovic might just cruise to this title, which for a contest and for the crowd's sake would have been a terrible shame. I, I remember feeling, though... Around that point, I can't believe this match will pass without Del Potro having a moment, you know, without him having something where the crowd suddenly start getting really into it and he draws them in. And that's exactly what happened. He he just caught hold of a couple of those bazooka forehands and even Djokovic couldn't get them back. You know, he, he's that kind of inspirational player, Del Potro. Then the crowd came into it. Then... You know, I, I always feel for Djokovic in those situations when he, because he's the favourite and because the crowd loves Del Potro and because they like the underdog and all the rest of it, he often ends up on, on the end of the neutral support going for a, a player like that. And he has to just stomach it. It's happened a lot here. Remember Federer three years ago, he really had to, to try to deal with, with, with a, a Federer, pro Federer crowd that so much wanted him to win. But I don't think there's anybody better in the world at just puffing their chest out and saying, well, come on then, bring it on. And when it comes to closing out tournaments, because he dropped his sets early in the tournament that he, he really struggled with. He had enough court a meeting with a doctor to have his vitals examined. But when it comes to closing out tournaments, Djokovic is so sharp. Yeah, um, he's won 14 Grand Slam singles titles for a reason. And the man he's now drawn level with, his idol Pete Sampras, he was brilliant at closing out 
big titles like that. He did it in a different way. He did it with a serve and, and brutal power. I, mean, I think Djokovic only hit one ace today, and yet he really served well still. You know, that's the thing with him. He, he doesn't do it with, with massive, powerful serves and, and two dozen aces, but he sets everything up from it, and he backs it up with... You know, one of, if not the best baseline game we've ever seen on a hard court. The new world number three, does he now go on to dominate for the rest of the season? Well, if you look at the trend, um, it's hard to imagine if he plays like this, many people being able to stop him. Nadal has has pushed him incredibly close at Wimbledon, but now who knows with Nadal how, how long it will take for him to come back from this latest injury. Um, I don't necessarily think it's automatic that Djokovic dominates. I mean... You know, he, he's going to take a little bit of time, I would have thought, to recover from this. You know, it, it's, it's a lot of effort emotionally and physically to put into it. But as long as Djokovic stays up for it and stays fit, he, he's just got everything. And a word on Del Potro, who's having the season of his career in terms of titles won. He's already won two titles, now three finals. He's been three in the world. He continues to go in the right direction. Oh, yeah. And isn't it great to see him back? It's great to have him part of the mix again you know we've had years of him just not being able to play and then when he did come back looking different having to slice his backhand and now he's hitting the backhand now he he looks like he used to more or less and um and he does a lot for the excitement of the game people are drawn to him and a fit del potro fit and firing is is a reason to rejoice your highlight or moment or match your person from the two weeks in new york there's been so many because it's been one of the most eventful tournaments <laughs> we've ever had we've Certainly had so has. many off-court stories which, a lot of statements haven't yeah we? Oh, yeah for us as journalists <laughs> and broadcasters it's great fun i mean there's just been stuff to get stuck into all the time i really enjoyed seeing andy murray back out on a grand slam tennis court playing and trying and and competing okay he lost in the second round but i but i loved the fact that that he did that. I think the highlight would would have to be Nadal against Dominic Team in that five set classic. It was one of the best matches we've we've seen, um, and it was one of probably three with the ones that he played against Dopotro and Djokovic at Wimbledon that I, I would say are the matches of the year. Um, and and it was just it's just a privilege, frankly, to watch. Now a little bit of time off for you or not? A little bit, but uh, talking <laughs> tennis is is what I love to do. So here I am talking to you, uh, which is always great fun. And um, yeah, more of that. Are you off now to do the tennis podcast? Because you've been doing them every day. I mean, that, yeah. that's a feat in itself. We yeah, talk we, about these five we do them daily at every Grand Slam tournament, which is uh, a big commitment <laughs> for Catherine Whitaker and myself, who's hosting the prime uh, video coverage in the UK. And, and I commentate for BBC Radio. But it's a labour of love. You know, we love talking about tennis. We do it every day at the Slams. We do it weekly throughout the year. And frankly, what's not to like? David, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me. Pleasure. So David is off to record his final tennis podcast from here in Flushing Meadows. So make sure you download and listen to that. I am off to find former WTA player Jill Krabis. They are the Golden Nine, a prestigious collection of ATP World Tour Masters 1000 tournaments. Hosted in the world's most spectacular venues and cities. Contested by only the world's very best, this is their exclusive playground. Coming at you from Indian Wells. Let's get it started. From Miami to Monte Carlo. Dang. Thank you, Monte Carlo. Get ready, Madrid. Game, set, match, Madrid. New balls, please, for Rome. 
Grazie Roma. See you in Canada. On to you, Cincinnati. Hi from Cincinnati. Get ready for Shanghai. From Shanghai to Paris. From Paris to London. You're listening to ATP Tennis Radio. For tickets to ATP World Tour Masters 1000 events, go to the ATP World Tour website and click on tournaments. Jill, hello, how are you? I'm great, Gigi, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. Uh, it's lovely to be with you. Now, we thought it would be a good idea to sit down somewhere a little bit quiet and look back on the last two weeks from sort of the, the semi-final and below because, as we know, as a plane goes overhead... It's normal in New York City. It's normal in New York City, but also when you get to the end of a tournament, it's it's just busy with so many people have to rush off, things are getting dismantled. It's just crazy. So we needed to find a quiet place. And I think we've done we've done relatively well and it's very peaceful right now because I don't know, just we're on the flowers in the garden and in front of the dining. It's really nice actually. What have you made generally of, of the two weeks? How have you enjoyed it? Because you're working here for the World Feed? I am working here for the World Feed and I've actually done three weeks. So I was here for the qualifying week as well, which was really exciting because it was all about the qualifying and also the legends played uh, during that week as well instead of the second week here, which is normally the case. Um, and then it was all um, about fan week too, leading up to the main draw and getting the fans to get really excited about the qualifying, but also excited about the main draw. So they had a lot of events going on. Um, and, and it's been, it's been great. I think they've had record numbers coming in every day, and I think it's just awesome to see it. I mean, I think it gets better every year. And a running theme has been the heat. You've been coming here for many, many more years than me as a player, now working the media side of things. Where does this heat and humidity rate? Um, it's, I mean, it's definitely one of the hottest. I've played in the heat here in New York City where it's been this hot before, but not not consecutive days. It's maybe a one-off day in the past. Um, but during the year, we play in, in a lot of heat too. They used to have a, t- a women's tournament in Bali that was just brutal. I mean, they didn't. But granted, they didn't start matches till five. A lovely place to play though, Bali. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we were very excited when that one got <laughs> on the calendar. Um, but but there's in Australia. Obviously, we've talked about is always so hot. But I think the air here has been so heavy, and obviously, it's affected a lot of the players. They even brought in the ten minute. Um, heat rule for the men's which normally doesn't happen so I mean that just goes to show you how the doctors were very concerned and um, obviously the health of the players is the number one priority so it's been really difficult and I mean it's a testament to these players that have gotten through like just their physicality and how they've been able to deal with all these conditions. I think that's the crazy thing about the heat as fit as you are on any given day it can just do strange things to you physically. Well it's interesting because I mean I was very lucky I was one that never really cramped or got tired or anything like that but there was this one year I played New Haven the week before and I actually got the flu in New Haven but I had still had like four or five days to recover before coming to the US Open but there was something still in my system I think from being sick and it was a I played on a probably the hottest day similar to what we experienced here in the first week Um, and I cramped and it was the only time I cramped and I would have never thought that I would have cramped but I think the fact that so you never know like what's happening in your body or if you're prepared enough I mean all these players are they're very professional they're doing the best they can to make sure they're ready but you never know how you're going to deal with it if we so our focus is going to be sort of semi-finals and backwards and anything in between that you want to bring up but the big story from the semi-finals 
was Nadal. And it was, well, it's actually a story, it seemed to be, from the third round when the tape appeared. He put the tape on during the match with Hashanov and then said afterwards, I don't want to talk about it. But sadly for Nadal, the knee got the tendonitis got too much and he retired two sets to love down against Del Potro. I know, and I, th- I think that was really sad. I think everyone was sad to see that. And I think he was even tearing up in his um, post-match press conference. So that's always tough to watch. But um, I think that is one of the hardest things for a player is to have to retire at a tournament. It's the last thing you want to do. You've worked so hard to get to the stage that you're at. And it's a decision that you just don't want to make. And I think he, I mean, he tried, obviously. He stayed out there as long as he possibly could. But it didn't make sense. There's always a danger that you're going to make the injury worse. I mean, he's somehow been able to manage it up until this point. He said he was feeling it. Um, Obviously, he felt it in Australia a little bit because he retired there. And it's something that he's had to manage throughout his career. So it finally got to a stage where he he felt like he might damage it more. And it was better just to stop. And he, he wasn't able to play to the 100% ability so you could see that he couldn't push off when he was serving he wasn't moving to balls and then Del Potro just had to to win the match so he started to use the drop shot and try and pull Nadal in and it just he's has a he's a very expressive face Rafa Nadal and it was really hard to see him in so much pain and if anything it was the mental pain of do I carry on what do I do and when he was at the end of his box looking up at them and I think they were saying look you've got to stop if it's bad he just didn't want to yeah you just it's so hard you just you don't want to and the the type of tennis he plays I mean he he wants to be 100% he he's one of the best movers one of the best fighters and he's he's super competitive just like anyone else and if he feels like he can't be competitive to 100% then that's really tough mentally to have to deal with and so, I mean, it's, it's, it was sad to see, and it's a really, really tough decision, but I think it was probably the best just so he didn't get worse. And it was interesting that coming into the match, a lot of people were talking about Rafa Nadal's time on court, nearly 16 hours, and that absolute epic against Dominic Team, and, and everybody was saying, oh, but it's Nadal, so, so it doesn't matter, and fitness-wise, he'll be fine. And, and fitness-wise, he was fine, but you wonder how much that didn't help the knee problem going at it with Team for as long as he did. I think I actually thought of that with when I saw how much time he had spent on the court. And even though he's extremely physically fit and can and if anyone can handle being on the court that many hours, it's him because his warm-ups are warm-ups are like an hour and a half long. So <laughs> he's definitely prepared for that. But just seeing his time on the court and also dealing with the conditions and the weather that we've talked about, I mean, that's just an extra toll physically that can take and mentally as well. I mean, I was wondering how he was going to turn up, um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's it's really tough. And if anyone can handle it, like you said, he can. But I think it did, obviously, it did catch up to him. And I think over 60 minutes for that first set against Del Potro, I mean, they were slogging it out for over an hour and then he didn't take the first set. So I guess that all adds up. If it had been, he'd, if he'd raced through the first set and thought, you know, maybe I can close this out in three, because he said afterwards in his press conference, the thing about the knee, yes, he knows how to manage it, but it could be a week and he's fine. It could be six months and he's fine. He, he never really knows. But I think after that first set, it went on for as long as it did. He probably thought this, it's not going to get any easier. Yeah. And also, you know, you have to still win three more sets. I mean, winning that first set. Okay. You have two more. Um, but obviously it was getting worse throughout the match. And, you know, the two, two, he's had to retire twice this year in the two slams and both on hard court. And the hard court can really take a toll on your body too. I mean, he won. Roland Garros the clay but the clay is much easier on the body it's not as hard 
on the hard court, you're pounding, constantly pounding over and over again. And that can just really be tough on the joints. And obviously his knees have struggled on that. And I don't, I don't know if that's a factor being on that hard court, but it seems like over those two weeks period, that constant pounding has been a little bit difficult. Were you watching, or were you on site, were you back at the hotel for the team Nadal match? I spoke to a lot of people that said they went to sleep and when they woke up early, it was still going on. I was at the hotel, I was watching, but I was watching every point and um, it was just, and I actually kind of wish I had stayed because it was so incredible. I mean, the tennis was just absolutely ridiculous. I think the way these guys were hitting off the court, I've never seen team hit the ball as hard as he did in that match. And the constant back and forth, it was almost like if you blinked, you would have, you missed like three shots. It was going so fast. Um, But the tennis this year for me at the the Open overall has just been unbelievable. I think the quality just keeps getting better and better. And the pace off the ground, the quickness, the defense of all these guys is just awesome. I mean, it's just, I feel so privileged to be here to be able to watch it. Yeah, it's been unbelievable. And I think in that Team Nadal match, Losing the first set, Nadal, 6-love and 24 minutes, winning seven points. I couldn't believe it. If someone's going to turn it around, it's going to be Nadal. But then credit to Dominic Team because when he had to then come from behind later in the match, he stayed positive and he stayed confident. And he hadn't really had any form following the final at Roland Garros. And this was an incredible run and performance from him. Yeah, and especially on a hard court because it's not his best surface. It's not his favorite surface. Um, The courts this year to me are a lot slower. Actually, I went to go hit during the qualifying week just because just so I understand it, what the players feel when they're going out there. And so I wanted to hit and see how the courts felt. I couldn't believe how slow they were. I'm like, I wish they were this slow when I played. <laughs> I would have been very happy. Um, but yeah, and I think I think he liked that because, you know, team is, he has like bigger strokes. So he needs that extra time to kind of prepare and set up for those shots. And so I think he really liked the court surface here this year. Um, but I agree with you. He did incredible job. He really went after his shots. And, and he's similar to Nadal like that, where he's not going to give up. He's going to keep fighting to the very end and um, I think he can take a lot away from this tournament I think he played really well now we're jumping around because there are so many stories and and the team match definitely led on from talking about Nadal but let's wrap up the semi-finalists and and Kei Nishikori was there ever a point you thought Nishikori would come through against Novak Djokovic because Kei Nishikori he is we feel he's finally fit but there just always seems to be a question mark whether he'll bring that very best Nishikuri onto the biggest stage? Um, I think he can. I mean, I think he definitely has um, the ability to win another slam, of course. I think um, he re- once he lost the first set, and I think um, he started changing his tactics a little bit in the second, where he started coming to the net a little bit more, and he was phenomenal at the net. I mean, I think he won probably 90% of his, his points when he, when he came to the net. Um, so I like that he adapted a little bit. He was making some changes, but I think... I think he really needed to win that second because after he lost the second set, I think he just—I think he just looked little physically and mentally defeated. And he even mentioned that he was a little bit tired, um, so he needed one of those first two sets, I think. And because once the second set was done, then I think it was just too much of a, a battle to feel like you have to win three more sets. And Djokovic came out the block so fast. He even said on court afterwards, "I was so happy with the way I played." I mean, it was. Yeah. He dropped. I think he dropped seven points in the first set. Yeah. I mean, for me. Djokovic has, I mean, he's playing extremely well. And right from the beginning of this tournament, I felt like he just, he was always intense and he always had really good work ethic. But 
I felt like he was even more intense from like the very first point of every single match. Like it's almost like, okay, I want, he wanted to break the player every single time in that first game just to send, make a statement and send a message. And I, I just feel like that is a little bit different to me where he's willing to come out with this extra intensity and just take it to his opponents right from the start. And, and I feel like a lot of his opponents haven't been able to recover once they feel that. They feel it from him right away. And I, I don't know, I feel like I'm not explaining it very well, but I don't, because he, he's always been really good at that, but I feel like there's just this extra part of him that's just giving that extra little bit more. Now, before I speak to Jill about him, I would like you to have a listen as we take a closer look at the Australian John Millman, who caused one of the biggest upsets by defeating Roger Federer. I think that, that's what this game's about. It's, it's being comfortable uh, at all the levels. Uh, I remember when I first started playing tennis at a future level and I'd be playing qualies and, and I'd be losing and, and I used to think that the level was so high and it wasn't until I, I started to get wins and back-to-back and -back wins and, and my confidence grew, grew at that level and then it started again at the challenger level and, and then again at the ATP and Grand Slam level. So, it's, it's all about getting confidence in your ability and, and having that belief in yourself. And I definitely feel, you know, that sense of belonging here. Sometimes I might go out there and I might get whipped and, and sometimes I, I might play some great tennis and, and, and do some pretty big damage. But um, I definitely don't feel overawed or anything at a tough experience, at a tough occasion, I think, because I'm starting to get a few more runs in the bag and that gives you confidence moving forward. And Millman is playing better than ever following surgery last February. It's extremely difficult too when you feel like you're, you, you're gaining a lot of momentum and, and then something like an injury kind of knocks you down a peg or two. But it's that belief that if I can get fit, I, I, I do believe I, I belong at this level. And it's, it's also the team you have behind you. They spur you on to, to go on, to be a better version of yourself and, and, and to bounce back. John took a job in finance during his road to recovery. You can't let tennis totally consume your mind because when you're out injured, you can go a bit crazy, to be honest with you. So I think it's good to, to get out there and expose yourself to, to the realities of, of the real world. And, and for, I think it really helped the rehab process. It, it cleared the mind and, and gave me, you know, just a sharper focus on, on, on wanted, what I wanted to achieve out of tennis. It spurs you on and it, it makes that desire to get back and, and to get back fit and healthy and competing, you know, all the more. And a Grand Slam quarter-final place is just reward. These are some pretty special moments that you're going to take with you and hopefully I can get a few snapshots of my head of, of places uh, like this and competing on this stage and I can take that with me for, for when I finish. Getting to know John Millman that bit better. A lot of people, Jill Krabus, know a lot more now about the Australian who came in here 55 in the world and sent shockwaves through Flushing Meadows. I know, I'm still learning about him too. I mean, I think he, just being here, getting to the quarterfinals, I think he completely doubled his prize money from his whole career or something like that. So I think he's pretty happy about that. But I mean, what I was impressed with the most about him was just his fight. I think, you know, he, do, he doesn't have one massive weapon, but his fight and his movement and his ability to just keep going is, is just incredible. I mean, um, you saw him play play Federer, and I feel like, you know, he's he's playing arguably the best player in the world. 
and I think the way he came out that and just didn't get intimidated by the situation and he's just stuck to his game and he's in a winning position and he you know he held his nerve so well I mean that was just great to see but the guy is just a machine I mean he's just running down every ball and he's just not going to give up and I think he just can take a lot from this and keep developing and, and getting better and creating some more weapons. But I think just his movement around the court was what struck me as just incredible. I remember speaking to an Australian cameraman ahead of his match with Novak Djokovic, and we were talking about the heat and how it can affect some players differently and how it obviously affected Roger Federer, which we'll talk about. And the cameraman said, he's a Brizzy boy. He's from Brisbane. <laughs> he understands this heat. He gets this heat. He's yep. fine in this heat. And even Federer said that too. Federer's was, like, I've been, you know, Brisbane's brutal. So and it was, it, but just so nice for John. Miller. Everyone you speak to, I got a chance to speak to him a little bit at Queens this year. We did a few fun things with him. There's a there's a video you can find online when he ties a knot in a jelly snake with his tongue. Have you seen that, Jill? No, I have not seen okay, that. Okay, go and have check a, it out. Yeah, go, that's <laughs> apparently his party trick. But he's. He's a really nice guy. And everyone you speak to is saying he's so nice. Yeah. He went and did some training with Roger Federer. No one has a bad word to say about John. I know. Mark. I've heard that too. I mean, I haven't gotten a chance to talk to him yet, and hopefully I will at one point. But, uh, yeah, I've just heard numerous people say over and over again that he's the nicest guy on the tour. So hopefully I'll get a chance to talk to him at some point. But, um, yeah, that's great because, I mean, he can just be – almost like a connector to a lot of these players and because if you're that nice I mean it can it can be infectious so I mean I, I think that's great well I have an idea I'm a big fan and for those of you who listen to ATP tennis radio Jill is one of our reporters at yes. some of the Masters events and we love Jill's we call them her fireside chats they are fabulous interviews they are long interviews. They are interesting <laughs> interviews. No deal, we love them. I so like to talk. <laughs> I think at the next time you're in an event with John Millman, I yeah. think that has to be, if we can put a list together. Yes, I'm going to put him on my list. I, th yeah. I think he's going to be top of your list. Yes, he's definitely going to be on the top of my list. Just because, I, I mean, I like getting people that I haven't spoken to as well. I, mean, I like revisiting with a lot of people and getting a second chat with them. But I do try and make a point of, of getting people that I haven't spoken to yet just to get a new perspective and to talk to them about things. So I'd be excited to and talk he, to him. Are you enjoying doing the reporting? I love it. I absolutely love it, yeah. I was a little bit nervous in the beginning, but um, I, I specifically chose some people that I knew really, really well in the beginning. And they made me, I mean, obviously we were real comfortable and it was just a little chit chat. And then from that point on, I've just, I've absolutely loved There's it. There's no little chit chat about it. These are long in depth, but it's fascinating because the great thing about ATP Tennis Radio is we have the time and we have the platform for you to get to know. Because how many media outlets, and I've done so many interviews for different people and you sit down, do a good 10 minutes. This is just 10 minutes I'm talking. This is small to Jill standard. And, <laughs> and they use maybe 30 seconds to a minute. And you're I like, might be getting a complex. I might have to make them no, shorter. No, 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 please, no, okay, no. no. If anything okay. longer okay they, they use a minute also of an interview you've done and you think oh but it was really good and we has it because you know time is limited the great thing about atp tennis radio is we've got every day of all the masters events there's gaps between matches and it's brilliant because we can actually and we've now got the new app the atp tennis radio exclusives right. where all those interviews go and it's it's nice because you played the game you know these people so you really get who's been your favorite so far well i also i mean i have to say like they've been all the players have been fantastic too I mean they they're the ones that are willing to give me this time you know they never yeah. feel like I have to like hurry or anything and they never make me feel rushed so the players and the coaches and the staff and everyone I've talked to have been great so they've been really good at you know giving me their time and not making me feel rushed which is you know well I mean it's their credit so listen out for for Jill and her interviews and ATP tennis right we I have digress. a lot of favorites we, by the way 
I, I, can't, I can't pinpoint. No, it, it does sound like yeah. you have a lot of favourites there. <laughs> right, so we digress. We're, we're going back to Flushing Meadows, which is where we are, and Roger Federer. There, it was interesting. He opted not to play a hardcourt tournament before Cincinnati and got to the final and lost, comfortably lost to Novak Djokovic and lost here to John Millman. He looked exhausted. The big thing coming out from the defeat was Roger Federer doesn't sweat and Roger Federer, Federer was very sweaty. Well, see, that, I watched that match on television too. And when, because they, and it was great because they showed the close-ups of him, right? And I was like, and my first thought, as soon as I got back to the hotel and turned on TV and the first close-up they showed of him, my first thought was, I can, I've never seen him that drenched in my life, ever. Because normally you don't see him sweating and he just, everything looks kind of in place. And he was just soaked. And I was like, wow, I have never seen him that way before. And I just don't think... I actually don't think he'd ever sweat that much, so I don't. Th- I think it caught up to him. I mean, I think he was even surprised that you know he wasn't able to physically feel great that that whole match. And I just don't think his body's ever sweat that much or felt that. And it comes back to you can be as fit as anything, but the heat does affect people. And it was very oppressive. They were finding. It, I remember Djokovic earlier that day or the day before had found it hard to breathe, and he yeah. had to have a medical assessment off court. And there were was it Lesia Serenko in her match was was almost on all fours. She she was broken with the heat, and it does affect people very very differently. And it seemed to not disturb Roger Federer, but really shock him because yeah. he's he's not used to that. Right. I think he was really surprised. And I I know a few players have mentioned particularly inside the stadium because normally when there wasn't a roof um, players felt like the air you could feel the air circulating a little bit more and you could feel their breeze and there was a lot more wind and um, it would swirl inside the stadium and then once they put the roof on it kind of covered it and it so it didn't allow the wind to come through as much and I feel like the players um, voice the fact that since that is more closed off like the, the heat and the humidity just sit in there and it's just so heavy inside. And I think that that actually made it a little bit harder to deal with. Do you think that's something that has to be looked at? Because I Probably, mean, these conditions yeah. were brutal. They were really brutal. And, and I know I, I read a couple interviews or I saw a couple interviews online where they said it, they, all the players felt like it just sat in there and there was no breeze anymore. So it made the conditions even more heavy. And then with the hardcore, it makes it five, six, seven degrees hotter. And so it, it's really tough. So, yeah, I'm, sh- I'm assuming they, they might look at that. I know Louis Armstrong has the – they have the little panels where the wind can come through a little bit more. So I don't know if they could think about it's kind of circulation like that or maybe some air conditioning or something like that inside. I don't know. I'm sure they'll, I'm sure they'll consider something. So do you leave Flushing Meadows thinking about Roger Federer that really, really the time might be coming to an end? Or do you look at that match as an anomaly because of the conditions and it's the same as before? Yeah, I, I think it's more of just a, a, for me, I feel like it's more of just a one-off because, I mean, he's played in conditions like this, maybe not that suffocating, I would say. I don't know. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I mean, it's once in his life that this happens. So I can't imagine it's going to be something that he's going to think is going to affect him that much. Another disappointment for Sasha Zverev, working with Ivan Lendl. They were first pictured together back in Miami. This was the confirmation of the partnership, which many people believe will be a good partnership because Lendl and Zverev Sr. have a relationship from when they were younger. And it feel, it's such a tight-knit group, but it feels like that could be a fit. Maybe it was too soon to think, oh, the Lendl effect, where is it? Because they've only been together a few weeks. But more frustration for Zverev Jr. Yeah, and I, and I agree with you. I think it's rel- it's too new. I mean, it's something that, you know, he just came on the team. I think it's really 
important. I think it was a good choice because of they've known each other for a while, their relationship. I think the communication between the entire team is really good because you have to, that's really important to make sure everyone's getting along and everyone's communicating well. Um, I think it could be a good fit because I know Sasha also mentioned, you know, after being on the court with Lendl, like it was another level of intensity that he, he didn't know about. And so that's something that doesn't happen right away, that, that doesn't mesh right away. I mean, you have to get used to that extra intensity. It's not something that, okay, I'm intense now, it's going to happen. It's, it's going to be over and over and over again. The, the practice sessions on the court, it could take who knows, it could take a couple months, it could take a year, but I think um, having that new level intensity, I think it gives Sasha a little bit more understanding maybe about what what goes into these two weeks to have that intensity all the time to, to get through these slams. And we still have to remember that Sasha Zverev is very young. Yeah, and he also played, someone was playing incredible. I mean, Cole Schreiber played amazing that match. I mean, he was stepping up and really taking it to Sasha Zverev, stepping inside the court. I think Zverev got pushed a little bit too far back behind the baseline. I just noticed sometimes where he struggled in matches, he's a little bit too far behind the baseline. And where he does really well, he's kind of up a little bit closer to that baseline. And I think Cole Schreiber did a good job of pushing him back. Another young player who has definitely got himself a few more fans than when he arrived and a few more people know who he is, is Karen Hashanov. He is young, he's just 22 years of age, one of that, that trio of Russians with Rublev and Medvedev that are fighting between each other in a good way, in a nice way, to get themselves up the rankings. But against Nadal, well, he just stepped up and it was it was a cracking match, a cracking match. Yeah, another phenomenal match. I mean, this is what's so exciting about the men's game is there's so many new guys coming up and I feel like, you know, they have big weapons like Hatchinov has a huge serve, huge forehand, his backhand solid. I feel like he's one that has a really good game um, to beat someone like Nadal. So I wasn't surprised that match actually like went the distance that it did because for me, someone that does well against Nadal is who can take that lefty forehand and kind of step up and, and take that backhand early. And Hatchinoff's one that can do that. So I wasn't surprised that he actually had a really good match against it at all. And he's very exciting, very explosive player. You know, he's got a lot of energy. So I think he's one to definitely watch. I think he's really exciting. A result we should mention, the winner of the men's doubles, Jack Sock and Mike Bryan. Bob must be at home going through his rehab <laughs> saying, what on earth is going on? He's like, I better get healthy. Yeah, I go and have surgery and you win two Grand Slam titles with, with someone else. That's uh, And Mike said at the end in the, in the speech with Jack Sock on court, he said, you know, Bob will be back. It's not the end of us. We'll be here next year. And if Jack doesn't mind stepping aside for when Bob's fit and he comes back. But there's two things here. The fact that the Bryans, one of the Bryans, Mike is continuing to ring titles over 40 years of age now but Jack Sock this split between cannot string any wins together on the singles court but then he's just won Wimbledon the US Open doubles back to back he's an amazing doubles player I mean I watch one I watched the whole match uh, the semifinals when they played when they beat Cabal and Farah and it was just an amazing match and I watched the finals and he just, I mean, he understands the doubles court so well, and he just finds, no matter what ball he's hitting, I feel like he just finds the opening. He just has an understanding of where his opponents are going to be, what what part of the court they're going to be covering, and that's just that's just incredible. I mean, he's he's got great touch, and I know he's been struggling in, in singles a little bit, and I could, after he won his first round, I mean, you could just see the relief here that he had after he won his first round singles match. He finally got that monkey off his back I think about losing quite a few singles matches so I think the fact that he won a singles match here is going to help him um, 
leading leading up to his next tournaments. But I think all those the doubles wins as well. It should give him a little bit of confidence. That's what I thought that that winning the doubles and playing the doubles would give him more confidence. And yes, it, it was great to get that first round win. He then lost in the second round to Nicholas Basilashvili. But are you surprised that maybe the double success hasn't had more effect on the singles court? Probably a little bit. I mean, it is a completely different game. Um, but, I, I, yeah, I do think a little bit. I think also it gets in your head sometimes if you haven't had the results in singles. Like, every time you step on the court, all of a sudden it's in your head that you haven't done well. And I think if he can start stringing a couple together in the, on the singles court, it'll help him quite a bit. I think having match play on the doubles and being able to come through in the doubles should help him a little bit. But, yeah, I think he needs – maybe it's about going to play smaller tournaments for him in singles where he can string together two or three rounds where he's playing a little bit lower events just to get that confidence back on the singles court that's something that could be really beneficial for him i think Uh, someone like kevin anderson for me has to be a permanent part of the conversations of big tournaments in terms of getting to latter stages he's now established himself these two grand slam finals us open last year at wimbledon he's getting to latter stages of masters he is a name now that is in the conversation a lot Definitely. And I think he's got that confidence, too. I mean, I think he's one that believes that he should be in semis and finals of slams all the time now. And I think, you know, the fact that he got to the finals here last year and now the finals at Wimbledon this year, I think that he really feels like he belongs in the later stages of the tournament. And um, he's almost, you know, sometimes players, they get really excited if they have their first breakthrough and they're in the second week. But it's another step mentally to be like, okay, that's weird that I'm not in, in the second week. And I feel he's at that stage where like, okay, I should be in the second week every time, which is which is great because he's found this new confidence. And, and I think, you know, I think he's definitely going to be part of the conversation. But I feel like there's so many guys like that as well. I mean, we've talked about a lot of highlights, I think, already. Andy Murray entering the Grand Slam, coming in, winning a match. Plenty of positives for Murray? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's about... For him, it's about staying healthy. I mean, I don't know how he's feeling after coming here playing the tournaments, but I was really happy to see that he was willing to play, knowing that it's going to be two weeks, three out of five sets. Because, I mean, that's always a factor, I think, knowing that you have to play three out of five sets this whole time. So that was encouraging for me, that he was ready and willing to play the three out of five sets. So I'm hoping he can continue and be healthy because I think he is missed. From I think a lot of people miss him watching him play. And Stan Wawrinka, he's still on that long road back from the knee surgery. Yeah. He just seems to be finding that form and getting those wins and, and building his... Stan Wawrinka always, for me, reminds me of um, like a, a diesel engine. It, it takes him a while to get going, to get up and running, but he seems to be gathering a bit of momentum. Yeah, I think um, it's funny because I watched him play in Toronto and I felt like he was still a little bit shaky with his movement. In his first couple of rounds, he played Kyrgios, um, and that was a good win for him. I think, um, you know, Kyrgios was very, um, what do I want to say? Was like, very curious. He was very curious, <laughs> but he was very, um, like he, he was actually playing well. Like it was a good match, but I don't feel like Warinka was quite there movement wise, but I think Kyrgios helped Warinka to come back into that match. And then the second round, I can't remember who Warinka played the second round, but then he played Nadal. And I feel great like match. that was a great match, but I feel like he knew he had to, lift up his level 
And so he started playing like the old Warinka because I think he knew he couldn't get away with just, you know, getting the ball on the court. So sometimes what you do as a player is it, it, you raise your level to the level. So if you're yes, stepping you out do with that. someone yeah. who is one of the top two, three in the world, yeah. you find yourself. Whereas maybe, maybe is it, it's, is it harder to get motivated against someone who's, I, I don't know, maybe it's not true. I wouldn't say it's harder moti- motivated, but I feel like, you know, if you're playing someone that's ranked a lot lower sometimes you feel like you know you can rally a little bit more where I felt like in I felt like against Nadal Nadal was playing so well in Toronto I felt like against Nadal that he couldn't get away with just you know hitting a backhand cross like he had to step up and play the tennis that he did when he won the French Open and when he and he when he won the U.S. Open so I think that even though he lost I think that match helped him because it it kind of reminded him of like how he needs to play and so I think that helped him coming in here because he he played well here I mean um, but I think he's starting to find his form again. And if you had a favorite match that stood out for you? Um, that you were jumping out of your seat, screaming? That I was jumping out of my seat. Well, there are so many. And people Gigi. watching, thinking, wow. I, I, well, I don't <laughs> think I, I didn't commentate on it, but I, the, the Nadal team match that we mentioned, I thought was phenomenal. It was, it was just awesome to watch. I think another one, too, was the Chilich Deminar match, because um, that was one that finished it almost had the record I think it was at 2 30 in the morning or something like that and I was actually here watching the whole thing so that was really exciting because because you know Chilich it went to five Chilich was in control of that fifth set five two Deminar came back five all so that had a lot and I think you know Deminar won a lot of uh, crowd fans there because I think you know just his effort I mean the way he runs around the court too I mean it's just ridiculous he's so fast he runs I mean he's not the biggest guy so he relies on his speed quite a bit, but you know, Chilich's pace didn't bother him at all. Like he was, and he he did he. That was a really fun match to watch. So you've you've enjoyed. I was about to say you've enjoyed the two weeks, but you've enjoyed your three, three weeks. weeks I have, yes, very much. You, I don't want it to end. I get sad every time it ends. Well, I was about to say, are you ready to go home? Because it's because as we know, tournament they're quite intense. Yes. Grand Slam tournaments. Yeah. Sort of seeing the same people every day. The hours can be quite brutal. You mentioned that sort of two thirty yes. finish. But I know what you mean. There's that mix between it's like the last day at school when everyone and some people leave early and people rush off and then but then the back of your yeah. mind you must be thinking, oh just gonna have a little yeah I mean look we're all tired we all get tired because it is you know a long two three I mean for three weeks but and there's you know some late finishes but on the one hand those late finishes are usually always super exciting that's why they're going late because everyone's fighting to their hardest but um yeah no I do get sad I actually get really sad I I get sad to say goodbye to people even though I know I'm going to see them again and I get sad when the tournament's done because it's been such good energy Jill Crave, it's been an absolute pleasure. And people can listen to some of Jill's fireside chats on our, well, on ATP Tennis Radio on your next reporting and event, but also uh, you can download ATP Tennis Radio exclusives, which is on TuneIn, and many of your interviews. You don't have a favorite? You've had a little bit of time to think. Is no, there one I, interview that you'd say? I can't, I can't, you can't put me on the spot like that. I can't have a favorite. I do, I, no, I have to say, I'm not kidding. Like, I'm being totally honest. Like, everyone has been so great. Everyone has been so great. I thought you were about to give me a name no. of a favourite. They're, they're great interviews. They're, they're all very different. You're they're one coaches. of my favourites, oh, Gigi. You. <laughs> never interviewed me. <laughs> that is definitely something you will not find on ATP Tennis Radio Exclusive. Jill, thank you so much Thanks, for your time. Thanks, Gigi. Pleasure. Just to remind people listening, there's plenty more to come on ATP Tennis Radio in Asia. We're going to bring you the final of the 500s in Beijing and Tokyo, plus wall-to-wall coverage of the Rolex Shanghai Masters. Then we move back to Europe with 500s in Basel and 
Vienna, followed by the Rolex Paris Masters. We've then got the next-gen ATP finals in Milan, which are a lot of fun, the second year for that tournament, and then the Nito ATP finals in London at the O2 Arena. So plenty more to look forward to. And don't forget to please join us next week when we'll have more great interviews and features from the tour. But it's been a pleasure speaking to you from here in New York.